This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. The sort of freedom and the tangential quality comes in with prose poems and there's no distraction. You can focus entirely on the image and the strange cantankerous voice. There's something that just clicks for me about that. There's something that I just love about that. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of The Poetry Review. Today I'm going to be talking to Luke Kennard, whose poems Allais on Bateau, Vile Figs and Arian appeared in the autumn 2020 issue of The Review. Luke's most recent books are Cain, published by Penned in the Margins in 2016, and The Transition, a novel, published in 2017. This year his second novel, The Answer to Everything, will appear as well as Notes on the Sonnets, a series of reactions to Shakespeare's sonnets. Thank you for joining us, Luke. It's really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for having me. It'd be great if you could maybe start by reading one of the poems from the review, Allais en Bateau. Yeah, let's do it. Allais en Bateau. In the hold, in the far corners, in the hotel filing cabinet, in the imperfect consecutive, Jonah slides the card into room 332's reader once, twice. At the desk, he lacks the language to explain his serious allergy to goose down, pinches his nose, mimes wheezing. They give him a piece of letter-headed paper. They do not recognise his drawing of a feather. He has to draw a chicken and they think he's hungry. He stuffs the bedding into the wardrobe. He goes out and wins a Rillacuma pillow from a giant claw machine. Then he eats a paper carton of cubed steak cooked with a blowtorch. Propped up on the blank bed, Jonah pours a miniature rum into half a glass of coke. He watches season one, episode one of a show called The Oarsmen, an ensemble piece which often takes the close third-person perspective of a young Spanish sailor. Jonah has a brief cameo in episode three, Jonah, in which he is mostly very annoying. How about, and I'm just spitballing here, how about they don't even throw him off? He just loses his balance and falls over the railings. I like it. I like it. Yeah, let's run with that. I bit through my tongue. Sometimes the ship lay on its side like a toy. At first we tried to bore through the waves with our oars, but then it started to feel like a great castle collapsed on us, our enemies loading their own children into catapults just to let us know. Lord, give me gills like a dove. The horrible stall alarm was going bleep, 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 and we were like no shit. Jonah goes down to the swimming pool in the basement, past 38 overlit rowing machines, swims into the centre and sinks in the fetal position. Go down and go down and go down. What meanest thou? What are you doing? You are the only one sleeping. Here he is at home. Here he is within so many layers of insulation. Someone else is using this device. Voiceover. I realised that I really had to get into the sea to understand why the people in this small fishing village voted to leave the EU. I stagger tentatively through the shallows, slathered in Vaseline, and the triumphant music swells over my paunchy little belly. We poured this blood into a river. Really makes you think, huh? When I emerge, droplets of water completely stationary on my oiled surface, they put a light blue towel around my shoulders and I say, oh my god. Saturn's rings, I say, are made of this water ice. Someone hands me a bucket of ice cubes so that I can hold a couple up. Okay, that's a wrap. Take five, everyone. Good hustle. That was brilliant. It's always a treat to hear you read. I mentioned in the introduction that you are writing a collection inspired by the book of Jonah, and I think some of the poems 
if not all, in the review uh, from that collection? Yeah, it's in progress. <laughs> Could you maybe say a bit about what it's all about? How is it evolving? I think I read that it was um, like a follow-up to Kane. Yeah, I felt that I wanted to write something else based on a character from the Old Testament and kind of cast around a fair bit and then became really interested in the idea of prophecy and the kind of prophetic mode and the things that the prophetic chapters in the Bible have in common with with poetry to a certain extent or not, in that quite often the prophecies fail, I suppose, as much as anything else. Um, Jonah has always been a favourite story of mine and it was one that I immediately gravitated to and it was a really late addition to the Old Testament and it's almost like a parody there are certain theologians who talk about it as being just a a pastiche of the other prophetic books and you don't actually even hear a word of of Jonah's prophecy within it but it also works what he says works even though you don't hear any of his words most of the other prophetic books are made up of the prophecies themselves so it's kind of a follow-up to Cain in that it's messing around with elements of the Old Testament and elements of theology and it's a follow-up in insofar as it has an I within it as well it has a kind of version of me but then I, I got really caught up in the idea that I didn't want to repeat myself that I can't go back to the same well again and Cain has this set piece in the middle which takes up most of the book of these um anagrams of a short passage from Genesis. Obviously I can't use anagrams again because if you've read anybody else doing stuff with anagrams there are certain similarities even between like the ones that I came up with and any other anagrammatic work. It has that sort of use of obscure words, the use of obscure syntax and things like that. It sounds a bit samey. Even within Joan, sorry, even within Cain it started to get a little bit samey. I think if I'd done any more I'd have just completely lost interest in the whole thing. So whenever I've tried to experiment with anagrams again I've just given up straight away. That's so interesting because I can't, I don't think I know of any other anagram collections. And for me, it's such a kind of incredible, it's just not how my mind works at all that, that you could just be like, right, I'm going to do all these anagrams and then come up with these actual functioning, amazing poems. I'm also interested in that you've been writing sequences quite a lot. Is that something that when you start out on it, are you just like, right, I know this is going to be a sequence rather than an individual poem. How does that sort of begin? See, that was something that I wanted to go back to. I think like I got so much out of working on Jonah and sorry, working on Cain and using those elements of narrative, using those elements of there being a kind of through line with the poems. And, and that as a restriction is one that I find quite liberating in that you can go off in these tangents. You can include poems that sort of stretch the edges of what the story and the subject matter is, but still have them pulled back towards this centrifugal force that having this focus of a particular story, however much you're distorting it, gives you. I guess some of that comes from teaching and it comes from teaching this MA module where we look at the poetic sequence and we look at Ted Hughes's Crow and we look at Anne Carson's autobiography of Red and we look at some Maggie Nelson, we look at stuff that's sort of slightly hybrid between poetry and prose, but just what it opens up to you when you've got something that is going to be a whole coherent book. Not great at writing sort of good standalone poems for one thing, like I rarely have a sort of a particular thing I want to articulate in 20 lines that is going to be any good whatsoever. So I like having that well, space. I would so disagree, I like having... but... <laughs> <laughs> I feel, or like I feel like I can, I'm only capable of doing that if I have that space. If I have the, the like the pressure is taken off when it's like actually I've got a hundred or so pages here and I can just go off on one. And then occasionally, that process of going off on one on the from the source material creates something that works. I think that maybe does 
standalone beer. But I wanted Jonah to be a bit looser, so I did use the same process, like, just read a lot. I'm still kind of trying to read a lot, and there's some really good Spinoza stuff on prophecy. There's loads of theological work on Jonah, some of it just deeply weird, the same as with Cain. So that felt like just an interesting thing to go back to, and that whenever I didn't feel like writing, I could just make notes and just read the footnotes of these kind of brilliant scholarly works until I find something that um, clicks and that gives me the starting point or some of the raw material for a poem. And sometimes that can just be a phrase or sometimes it can be a whole idea that I wasn't familiar with. So the idea of one of the poems in the Poetry Review, um, Arion, is based on this idea of there being a sort of forerunner to Jonah in Greek mythology, who was also thrown off a boat, but was rescued by a dolphin rather than being swallowed by a whale and I wasn't familiar with that myth at all and I only came across it because it was dismissed in a footnote in a theological book about Jonah it was dismissed as a forerunner it was we should not see this as a forerunner but it struck me as being undeniably a forerunner you know, un undeniably a very similar story of somebody being for more mercenary reasons and Arion being thrown off the boat they just wanted to kidnap him and take his stuff basically <laughs> So yeah. they were just trying to kill him. But the fact that he's rescued, the fact that the drowning doesn't work, I mean, it's so clearly a background story that the writer of Jonah was drawing on. Yeah, so it's like a spin-off. It sort of feels like, because mm. in um, Aleon Bateau, you've got this sort of voice coming in who's a bit like a sort of Netflix exec kind of pitching an mm. idea or something. With TV, you have these spin-offs. So you have Breaking Bad and then you've got Better Call Saul or something. So yeah. is this like the poetry version of that. Yes, no, I like that as an analogy. It's the poetry equivalent of Better Call Saul. It's finding those spaces in the narrative where you can just spin out a whole new show, a whole new thing. I keep coming back to um, television in this collection again, the way that I did in Kane, maybe in a slightly less indulgent and self-destructive way. In Kane, it just becomes another sort of addiction, I think. And in this, it's sort of, it's there. Again, I, yeah, again, it's this worry about repeating oneself. So in this one, I almost, I wanted... Jonah as a character in the poem I just read for him to be a kind of TV presenter and I guess that's a sort of natural thing if you think well what would if there was any such thing as a prophet anymore what medium would they use and it's like well they'd either be on stage or they'd be on television if they wanted to reach more people and I guess that just got me thinking about usually the rather crass or reductive treatment that any given subject inevitably gets within sort of documentaries especially within sort of celebrity-led supposedly informative documentaries and we understand that it's going to be a kind of shallow dive into whatever the subject matter is but I think nothing against Brian Cox but the Saturn's ring thing comes from that I'm fascinated by astronomy and by the solar system and things like that but I've always I find those documentaries so utterly tedious and it will just be things like this is the composition of Saturn's rings and then literally will just hold up some ice and will have been flown out to a the top of a mountain in Peru just to hold up a bucket of ice and it's like this is terrible um but it struck me that there's a parallel to be drawn there with how politics is presented to us within documentaries as well and these sorts of bien on positions where it's like let's try to understand the reason that people um voted this way or made these decisions that's tried to present their side of the story and let's try to, I don't know and so often it's just done so dully and crassly either I don't know there's a simplicity to it that doesn't really doesn't get even answer its reality. own questions doesn't even yeah doesn't, doesn't yeah. really do anything to get us there so I guess the rather despairing feeling that any form of prophecy would be sort of filtered through the same and just nobody cares in the same way that like most tabloid journalists are not tabloid readers they're just exploiting this readership that they willfully keep fed on the same gruel. I just sort of slightly uh, change tack or change the subject because you 
mentioned the similarity between the Jonah collection and Cain in that there's a, a, a Luke Kennard character. And I was mm. like rereading Cain this morning, which for those who don't know, I should say follows the sort of misadventures of a character called Luke Kennard. And there's a poem called Vestigial Stammer in which you write, as a child, I stammered, but now my stammer only comes back when I have to say my own name. And the poem goes on, if you can rephrase what you're trying to say, if you can find a synonym, you work around the blockage. I still stammer when and only when I have to say my name because there is nothing else for it. And I just really loved that. It sort of seemed like a kind of a metaphor for confessional poetry, which your poetry isn't. And I was sort of wondering if, is there a similar kind of stammer that occurs in writing when the poet identifies themselves and does a fictional Luke Kennard sort of become a synonym for the real one? That's a really sort of central image in the collection and also one that I haven't really thought about in a while. And it it is unlike quite a lot of things on Kane drawn directly from autobiography in that I did have a, a terrible stammer. And it does still come back if I'm in, if I have to say my name in a, uh, either in a professional context or in a, in a cafe when they want to write your name on the, on the cup. And then it just, it, it, I, I will stand there in silence, just trying to get my own name out of my mouth. So, so, so yeah, I suppose that is, that's as close as I get to true confessionalism. But I like that tension between, I don't know how much of yourself you reveal, how much of your real self is in poems. I talk to my students about this a lot, sometimes just the need for protecting some sense of self even if your aim is to write something that is quite raw and true to yourself, you don't owe anybody anything other than that. It might as well not be you, I suppose, is my feeling, in that, like, however personal you are in your poetry and however completely brutally honest you are, that's all that you owe to the reader. It's still a construct. It's still, there can still be, like, quite a lot of space between that and your real self. And I think you can damage yourself if you link those things to closely. It's a tough one, but I think it's something that really interesting work makes quite a lot of sport out of playing the tensions off. If it is a construct, then you can kind of have some fun with that as well. And you can blend radical honesty with absolute fabrication as well and sort of mix in dreaming and the unconscious. I mean, and I suppose I've always felt that like that's profoundly relevant part of who you are is your your unconscious and your dreaming life and your imagination as well and I feel like that can often be more revealing of a kind of true sense of self than just saying I had this argument and it was bad and it made me feel like this you know it's kind of like that's great too I like I like poems that do that I'm often advising people to do that it's like I don't want to know about the chasm of remorse I want to know exactly what happened (laughs) I suppose this is a thing that kind of happens with autofiction as well and it's like we just shouldn't care whoever we're talking about as a writer. Like, it's just, I feel like this sort of came from the sort of literary equivalent of Heat magazine that has always surrounded kind of Hughes and Plath, right? And that's become this kind of stupid model for how we look at poets and how we expect their lives to go and how we expect them to behave and how, how we seem to expect them to give some kind of moral account of all of their failings and all of their... And again, it's just, it's sort of white noise. People use it as white noise. People use it to stand in for their own shortcomings. It's just like, just like, stop. I don't get that drive. It's like, everyone feels curious. Everyone has a sort of puerile sense of curiosity about other people's lives. But like, it's not a good thing. It's something we should suppress in ourselves, is this kind of, is this idle, gossipy curiosity about other people. It's like, whatever, you know. Do you think it's particularly an issue in poetry? Because 
poetry is complex and it's not it doesn't often or immediately offer up its meaning so people have to then yeah. grasp read that, into it oh this person's father died in a boating accident that's why they're always writing about the sea hence, or something. yeah hence all of the gamels and <laughs> the oceans <laughs> i know no, I'm, I'm guilty of that myself i'm sure in many sort of readings of poems or things i've written about poems it's true i think maybe it's unavoidable i remember when i was um studying and MA in 2001, I think this was, and we were in the same small group, whether we were doing short fiction or poetry, we found poetry really, really easy to share, working drafts and stuff that was still in progress, that could be sort of deeply revealing and deeply personal, but we found it very easy to turn up with a couple of poems and receive criticism, even if it was fairly brutal. And with fiction, that felt horrible. It felt really exposing turning up with a 2000 word short story in progress. That felt very exposing. It's not just the length of the piece of writing, it's the fact that that has to be, it has to contain your judgments. You come up with these characters, you come up with the situation, you're making your characters suffer, you're putting them in quandaries, and you're passing comment upon that. And it's like, that feels very exposing. That's really interesting because obviously you write prose, you write poetry, you write, I think, also for the radio and theatre. So there's all these different genres. Does one genre feel different to another? I would agree that I find prose weirdly feels more exposing than poetry, but you wouldn't expect it to be that way round. I think when I'm writing poetry, I'm generally enjoying myself and actually taking some pleasure in the process, in the in the ideas. I feel like I know what I'm doing in my own weird way. I know how to create certain effects, or at least I know how to write something that I'd be happy to happen across if I was browsing in a shop. Like, so there's a certain confidence I have in poetry, and I don't know if that comes partly from this sense of freedom and ambivalence and the ability to go off on tangents to make the tangents almost the main event. You can write fiction that way. I mean, I can't. I think I remember when my first novel was being sent out, an early draft of it, a couple of editors who rejected it were sort of saying like, can you ask him if he can write a novel that's a bit more like his poetry? Which my agent did, and I was like, oh no, if I could have done that, I would have done I'd love to do that. (laughs) But it's like, I think that's maybe like a little aim, background aim of mine, that that's something I'd like to do within the next 20 or so years, if I find some way of kind of fusing the two. But But your poetry, they're almost like little novels already, I feel like. Right. So you don't need to do that. Yes, exactly. Maybe it's just not necessary. Maybe the novels can just be their own thing. It's like at the moment, I feel like it comes from a totally different place. And I find fiction writing something that I desperately want to do and also something that I really struggle with and take very little pleasure in, fitful pleasure, like maybe 500 words every 10,000, where it feels like, okay, I've got myself to a scene that I actually want to write now. Most of the time, it just feels like writing yourself into a corner It's the sort of plot mechanics stuff that like certain things have to happen now that I have no interest in writing (laughs) and that I have no interest in. Like I've scrapped whole projects before because it's like, well, now this character has to go on trial. I don't want to research the legal system. I don't want to go into court and make notes about how it smells. I don't want to do that. So so actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to junk the whole project (laughs) since there's no other way of plotting this. It's that. And I think it's that you can just, you can write for like half a year and write like a hundred thousand words and all of it can be garbage <laughs> all of it you can have I mean, it's not a waste because i guess i like to think i suppose that i've learned from doing that that i've got something out of like 
maybe how to avoid those drastically wrong turns before they happen. But in poetry, there's not so much lost. If a poem goes wrong, I'm more than happy just to be like, well, that was a failed experiment and that's fine. And it was enjoyable doing it anyway. Let's try another one. There's a sort of, there's a joy to it. If you've got like 10 failed poems in your drawer, like Mm. who cares? Mm. But if you've got 10 failed novels, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, then it's like you've really committed yourself to failure on like a grand scale. (laughs) There's no... (laughs) I'm mindful that I've got so many questions to ask you and we have only a small amount of time and also we want to hear you reading some poems. So it'd be great if you could read Vile Figs. Yeah. This poem has two epigraphs. One is from the psychoanalyst Gertrudis van der Veer and one is from uh, the Robert Bresson film Diary of a Country Priest. The van der Veer is, we know that all vertebrates capable of action have to cope with an initial non-attunement of actions and needs. The reason for this is structural. And the Diary of a County Priest one is just, a true priest is never loved. We hated to see a robot in a coat, absolutely hated to see a robot shivering and gathering its puffy Olympiad jacket around its beveled metal shoulders as it ambled away from the hospital, insulted something in our hearts, humiliated us even, made us feel sick that we might actually throw up. The robot would explain that he was programmed to feel the cold. What garbage we'd spit at its feet. Had it also been programmed not to correct its own program? How convenient that it should have such a sound excuse when anyone could see that it chose to mock our own frailty the way any demon chooses. So we would trip the robot by the roadside, its corkscrew arms, its spanner legs bent back. We'd sit on its warm chest, a plate that hummed and glowed in time with our own pulses, then quicker as we roughly pulled off the coat and told it that we would bequeath the coat to the truly cold, the truly needy. Yes, yes, I see, the robot said. Of course there were those who sympathised with the robot, wept at operas about homelessness. I have nothing to say to such people. This poem sort of epitomises for me some of one of the things I really love about your work, which is this descent into this kind of humorous rage. It sort of reminded me of the kind of rage that we get at technology. It can inspire such anger and yet it's completely futile because it's not going to respond to the rage in any way. Futile rage is a theme that sort of seems to recur in your work a bit. And I'm really interested in anger as a kind of motivating creative force, which I feel is something people don't talk about that much with poetry. It's obviously something that occurs a lot in stand-up, like thinking of like Stuart Lee is someone who I think of a bit in relation to your work. And obviously in rap, it's a big thing. So I just wanted to ask you about that and also about the humour. Like, do you think that humour discharges rage in some way? Is there a link between them for you? No, there definitely is. Yeah, it's and it's that, that's true. That That is in stand-up, isn't it? Which is just a sort of a dramatised irritation that is almost a, that becomes a kind of joke on itself, right? So sometimes the joke can be, why is this person so worked up about this and that poem so it's partly about artificial intelligence and where the sort of human starts and ends but I suppose it's also about a sort of performance of empathy as well and the way that we at times even sort of resemble AIs in our sort of 
learned responses to things or, or our sort of editing of our own responses or our need to appear empathetic, which I think sometimes can be such a sort of, I don't have anybody at all specific in mind here. So this is one of those rather sort of formless rages. But I think the, the desire just to come across as a good person in your writing is something that we need to willfully resist. There's just so much fascinating material and so much of genuine humanity, even in focusing on small irritations and, and just turning the volume right up on that and, and being unreasonable and being just snarky and it can come across in your sort of stage persona as well. I had many conversations with my therapist about this and in feeling like a completely different person when you're on stage, a meaner person. I mean, I'm a total Pollyanna in real life. Like I absolutely just, you know, I just want everyone to like me and I want to be as nice as I possibly can be to people as long as my patience allows which is um, plenty. And then on stage, I just, yeah, I just become this asshole. Generally sort of be quite derisive to the audience and generally and just sort of treat them with a certain amount of contempt. And I think that comes across in the speaking voice within the poems as well. The speaker within the poem is a different side of me that is kind of unforgiving, that is sort of self-consciously unforgiving, that is extremely irritable, that is self-aware, but in a way that only makes them an even worse person. Like, there are elements of this to my real self as well, but it's something that I'm very engaged in exploring within the poetry. Do you think that by letting it out in the poetry, that saves it from coming out elsewhere? Yeah, I wonder if it's this slightly this sort of spit valve thing, which is an image that's always fascinated me, <laughs> the poem as a kind of spit valve. But I mean, I don't know. Charles Whaley has written some good stuff about this. He has this wonderful long essay on Kate Kalalia's poetry, and he wrote a really generous long review of Kane, which was really useful to me just emotionally as well as as well as as a writer but just this I suppose the idea of poetry as a kind of confessional in that sense and in in the sort of the right of confession certainly within the orthodox church it's it's something that runs so counter to our instincts and that this is you're supposed to go into a room with somebody and tell them the worst things about yourself and tell them your worst thoughts and tell them your underlying motivation I think it also reminds me of as being a teenager and taking too many drugs at a music festival and then just lying unable to move in my tent, being convinced that I was evil, that I was the most evil person who'd ever lived. And every single thing that I had said and thought and done was being like intricately woven into this ultimate originatory evil. Every single thing had the worst possible motivations. And it was this hour, and I still remember it really intensely, this sort of merciless hour of self-loathing before a friend of mine dragged me away to see Yola Tango, um, <laughs> which was a good soundtrack to those feelings, but, but that we generally don't, right? That is also very human to want to come across well. So I feel like that problem, that knot, is something that poetry is quite good at attacking, either at tying other knots over it or at trying to untangle a little bit as well. What is any of this? What do we mean when we're, sorry, this is sounding too hoopy, but like, <laughs> what are we doing when we're writing? What are we doing? What is it that we're trying to get across to anybody else? What is actually this, almost this kind of primal scream that is underlying it, this sort of urgent need to be understood and to be to be loved, essentially. All anybody ever really wants, whatever their situation is, is to walk into a room and feel understood and loved. <laughs> well, these are the fundamental questions we're really getting down to the bedrock. Mm. I mean, mm. especially in the last few years in poetry, there's definitely this with all these questions about should poetry address difficult, problematic subjects and how can that be done? And there is, I think, a tendency or a worry that, that you might put something in a poem that will come across negatively and then you'll be subjected to the Twitter mauling and so on. And yeah, they're very big questions because 
I agree with what you were saying before about the desire to come across as a good person, basically, in person, but that then filters into the poem as well. And that it feels like that's not the right place for it to be. It's tricky, isn't it? Because there are certain, I mean, yeah, it does raise the question of like, if the views that you secretly hold are actually just disgusting, <laughs> you're just yeah. a sort of Nazi misogynist or something like that, then it's like, well, what the hell? <laughs> what gives? Why would anybody want to hear your garbage? I suppose there's a fear of being misconstrued. Like, I think I even worried, like, as if anybody was really going to read it with that kind of attention. But I even worried in the first poem that I read in L.A. on Bateau that it has this sort of oblique reference to that Enoch Powell speech where he purloins from the prophetic chapters of the Old Testament about the, the rivers of blood image that he horrifically used. And I wanted that to be a reference to how this material has such plasticity that it can be turned towards whatever nefarious ends that it wants to be in that commentary on TV presenting and on editorialism. I think I worried that including that image at all was something offensive. But then it's like, it's about an offensive thing. I think there are times where you need to be sensitive. You need to be aware of your own subject position and what how it comes across, like what the things you're talking about are. And it's like, this is something I talk to my students about a lot as well, about almost like this sort of the death of postmodernism, that sort of, if we can agree that certain things are absolutely wrong and horrific and against everything that makes us human, that we can maybe sort of agree on a certain idea of the opposite as well. We can maybe agree on a certain idea of truth if there are certain values. But I feel like this is a, a strange and slightly chaotic cultural moment where we're arguing about that. It would be sad if that just made us write extremely well-behaved poems that leave out our ambivalence and ambiguity and, and the actual underlying fact that maybe we're not very good people at all. Certainly no better than anyone else as writers, perhaps worse than everyone else as writers. <laughs> that ought to be gonna, celebrated, is my view. It's all going to come out. We're getting close to having to wind up. So I want you to read one more poem and then I, I'll ask one more question. If you could read Arian and then I'll ask you something else after that. Brilliant. Thanks for me. This is a one sentence poem, so it should be quite quick. I'll rattle through it. Arian. Arion, who created the Dithyram, who invented tragedy, to whom we owe the fact that to this day fifty satyrs sing the chorus to our every song, would never have agreed to board the ship without a retinue, would not have fallen for a lesser ruse or succumbed to a bag over the head, and so the ship was renovated at great expense and gilded, and the men went hungry for the figurehead. Arion's tyrant patron gave him a servant to tune the lyres, the formal lyre, the best lyre, the lyre for static evenings on the deck, a lyre for sleepless nights, a lyre for every lover and their plausible deniability, vague shapes of the first letters of their first names, the vision lyre, a lyre mottled with salt spray, a practice lyre, the lyre he never touched, the cursed lyre, each needed to be kept upright, so when they kidnapped him, they had to kidnap all the lyres too, and store them safely on the orlop deck, and pay his servant and pay for wax and resin, lint-free cloths, his coterie and security guards and hangers-on, so space and food were as tightly rationed as the seeds of mutiny, while Arion, incarcerated in his finery, strolled up and down, strumming a pocket lyre, and sang, without ceasing, songs which called them each by their own names, like lovers, relentlessly specific graphic songs about their deaths at sea. 
or not, in fact, at sea, but on a beach where all the men would be, for some reason, crucified around a statue of a meekly smiling dolphin. This guy. So when they'd had enough and thought they'd make as much from selling his lyres, his garments and his trophies as they'd make from intellectual property, they gave him two choices, suicide and a proper burial on dry land, or they could just throw him into the water right now. And Arion asked for his lyre, the best one, and asked that he be allowed to sing a final song. And it was this one. And many dolphins surrounded the ship as he played. And while the last note hung in the air, he threw himself backwards over the taffrail. But there was was no splash, and then the men saw Arion riding on a dolphin to the clouds, a hail of glitter stones, a rainbow bursting from its anus like a laser beam. It carried him all the way to Cape Teneron, where he quite forgot to throw it back to sea, and so it perished on the shore, and Arion was not even involved in commissioning or funding the statue to its memory. I wanted to ask you something I ask most of the people who come on the podcast because I'm always really interested just how you got into poetry and were there any sort of key moments like writers that sort of acted as catalysts for you or epiphany moments where you were like that's it that's what I'm gonna do. I think I always wrote really terrible sort of teenage poetry from quite a young age terrible song lyrics as well just really excruciating stuff that I can remember but I won't quote here. So it was probably when I was at university, when I was studying English, and, and I used to hang out with drama students quite a lot. And we had this fortnightly kind of scratch night, a sort of script in hand performance thing that we would always try to write new things for every two weeks. And I would generally write these convoluted monologues, mostly out of just sort of trolling my friends in what, what I could get them to read out and perform and try to read dramatically. So sometimes it would just be sort of something radically boring and sometimes it would be something that was so overly complicated that it would just fall apart. And that, when I look back, I feel as though that's something that was really formative in terms of thinking about poetry. And then when I found, was looking at some examples of prose poetry on a, a poetry module, that was a real kind of moment where something just unlocked for me. Because I was like, all of these prose poems, in that same way, feel kind of irritable and snarky and almost written as a kind of insult to the reader who has to sound it out in their heads. A lot of Baudelaire's stuff, even some of them are quite beautiful, but a lot of them have that quality to them, that slightly trolling sort of quality. And I was like, that's sort of what I'm doing in this stupid adolescent way. That's what I'm doing when I'm writing these monologues for the drama students that I know. And that, so it was kind of realising that I could use that, I think. That was when, when I stopped trying to sound profound in poems or sort of realised that that was maybe the sort of the most egregious error that one can make in a poem is trying to sound extremely intelligent and <laughs> profound and that actually that I could do it that way that I could do it by being it's not satire but it's a sort of satire against the self in a way against the speaker and I think that so maybe that sort of dramatic convention I've definitely found this in um, Chekhov's vaudeville pieces as well in the monologues that um, Chekhov wrote just to pay the bills that he didn't take nearly as seriously as his actual short stories, but that he just wrote as little stage pieces. And around the sort of Dorothy Parker era in New York as well, when those shows were still quite popular, and it was often just sort of these little character studies or these kind of welcoming speeches that fell apart, that sort of thing. It's like that. So something of that kind of stage influence, I think, played into what, what I decided I could do. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about prose poetry, which you, of course, have a PhD in, and you've written a lot of prose poetry. And it's a form which even though it's sort of widely used, I feel like it remains an outlier, even though, you know, it's hugely appreciated by practitioners and you've got some major prose poetry collections that have won 
big prizes like Claudia Rankin's Citizen. But I don't think I've ever seen a prose poem win a single poem prize. I'm curious to know why you think that is and what the form means for you. With prose poetry, just with the last couple of years of stuff I've been writing, I wrote a lot of prose poetry. I wrote this 20-piece sequence for a pamphlet and that was right after a, a pamphlet I did for Verve Press, a Birmingham-based press that was also ended up being just prose poems. The editor preferred those, so I ended up just working on them. And then all of Notes on the Sonnets, all 154 of them are prose poems. And then I started trying to write stuff for Jonah, and I was still kind of stuck in that mode. I was still writing prose poems. And I just decided I needed to break that. I needed to change that. So I started trying to rewrite the draft poems I'd written for Jonah and rewrite them in, in verse. And I found that it just didn't work at all. I couldn't convert them out of prose poetry back into verse with line breaks. And I had to kind of start again and use the material. There was this sequence of poems in responses to paintings of Jonah, some of them notional, imagined paintings of Jonah. Um, and I just had to write new poems in verse and kind of use a different rhythm of, of images and a different kind of sound, which was instructive to me. It made me think, right, I need to kind of keep these two modes going and I maybe need to like to actually force myself to write in verse a little bit more and start just playing around with some more forms a little bit just to keep it interesting but also it's like I was like why am I stuck on prose poems at the moment like that being maybe one of the first things I really loved writing the sort of freedom and the tangential quality that I talked about earlier maybe comes in with prose poems and there's no distraction you can focus entirely on the image and the strange cantankerous voice it's more what it allows it's the permission that it gives you I think that appeals to me that it opens something up and you're writing something which is a poem and that you're asking the reader sometimes maybe unfairly to receive it as a poem even though you're composing it and they're going to receive it in essentially this paragraph form but there's something that just clicks for me about that there's something that I just love about that James Tate is probably like one of the first examples of a sort of contemporary poet who used prose poetry a lot and that just led me on to reading Maxine Chernoff and Russell Edson. But then you kind of get into these poets like Anne Carson and the people that she's influenced who write really long prose poems, right, you know, the, who appropriate the form of the essay or the lecture and, and write something that is essentially a poem, but it's like a 12-page essay and that really blows my mind as well. I love that deliberate misappropriation, which I always liken to a kind of clowning in a way, like doing something so deliberately wrong in a way that's really pleasurable, in a way that is kind of great and contain all kinds of other ideas that the traditional essay or the traditional talk doesn't. Whether the prose poem is really concise or whether it's quite an expanse, that can kind of hold, I think. So it just seems like a good form for interrogating all these different ways of writing and speaking that come through to us. It's a really, like the thing that I concluded in the PhD is that it's a really self-conscious form of writing. You're really aware of the construct of what you're doing and, and what you're asking of the reader. And it foregrounds that in a way that definitely for the stuff I'm interested in writing about feels really useful, feels really expedient. I right? like that, the, the maybe the dialectic quality, that it feels like more of a conversation between you and the reader. It cuts through to something. It makes me think back to what you were saying at the start about sequences. Well, you didn't put it like this, but how I interpreted it was that you felt like the kind of the framework of the sequence kind of gave you a sort of safe space in which yes, to like freely yes. explore stuff. And I feel like the prose poem has a similar, even though it's you would think it's more expansive because it's prose, it's actually more restrictive whilst being expansive within it. <laughs> yeah, it has that contradiction, I think, sort of almost built into it. 
it frees you up. It can allow you to focus on something, make one tiny little insignificant moment into a sort of museum exhibit. It kind of, it, it, and I know like other poems can do that too. I always feel like there's a certain distance, a conceptual distance when I'm writing verse or I'm writing in a form. There's something artful about it. I don't mean that in a positive or negative way, but there's certainly with me, the way I feel when I'm writing, there's a distance in the verse stuff and the more formal stuff. And prose poems give me this way of immediately levelling with this sort of imagined reader or with myself. Maybe it comes back to undercutting what I was saying about confessionalism at the beginning. It gives me a space in which to be more convolutedly honest. So from the safe space of the prose poem to the safe space of the podcast and its restrictive and expansive possibilities, um, which sadly must now conclude. Um, But thank you so much for joining us, Luke. Thank you, Emily. Listeners should remember to look out for Luke's new books this year, Notes on the Sonnets, which is coming out from Penned in the Margins, and The Answer to Everything from Fourth Estate. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.